Paul emphasizes back in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, that one of the primary roles of New Testament prophecy is not to bring new revelation that brings with it new doctrinal teaching, like the Old Testament prophets or, or the apostles. Rather, what does he say? Its role is for building up. It's for encouragement. It's for consolation, for, for comfort of the church. That's its role. Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Do spiritual gifts like prophecy, tongues and their interpretation, and healing still occur today in the modern church? Or have these things stopped since we now have the full inspired Word of God in Scripture? If they continue, should we seek these gifts? If they have ceased, then what do we make of experiences that we have seen or heard about in regards to this topic? Most importantly, we should be seeking the answers to these questions in Scripture itself, not in our own or other ex experiences. That is what we hope to do as we continue in our sermon series on the Holy Spirit. Our passage today comes from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11, which says this, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the, through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another the faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the works of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you are all doing well this uh, beautiful, if not kind of smoky, summer day. Um, this morning we're going to be beginning part five of our study on the Holy Spirit. We're already, you know, one sermon over what I thought it was going to be to begin with, but I hope you are enjoying it as much as I am. But we're looking at part five of our study on the Holy Spirit, and we're looking at how the Holy Spirit gifts the church. Now I want to say at the very outset a, uh, a couple of things, and first this is going to be somewhat of a teaching heavy sermon, kind of a, a teaching heavy sermon. So I kind of, I, I pray that you bear with me during that, and I'm going to need all of your help keeping Paul awake, Pastor Paul back there. Um, he's known to doze, so just, uh, I haven't done that joke in a while, I have to throw it in there. That happened one time during an elder meeting at like, like 11 o'clock at night, but, uh, but keep an eye on him, because you never know. Uh, but second, so it's going to be a, a teaching heavy sermon. But second, I also want us to keep unity in mind here. Keep unity in mind. We're going to be broaching some subjects this morning where there's been a lot of kind of in-house Christian debate, specifically on the nature and the prevalence of certain spiritual gifts. But again, this morning, as always, I want us to strive to have Scripture and the Holy Spirit to be our guides, right? And I want us to see our experiences, or maybe our lack of experiences, and all of the rest fall into submission to what God's Word says about this topic of spiritual gifts. And we are a church that is made up <clears throat> of various theological backgrounds. And so there will be some kind of differing opinions on this particular subject. And so in this, I want us to really strive to have grace and unity here. 
recognizing that this topic that we're about to kind of explore together is not a salvific issue. This is not an issue of salvation. All right? Having your theology spot on about spiritual gifts is not going to grant you special admittance into the highest of heavenly courts. Okay? And likewise, having your theology here slightly off is not going to bar you entry. And so as we dive into this topic this morning, this topic of spiritual gifts, let us remember to have that perspective. Grace and unity. Now, we've got a lot to cover this morning, and so uh, we're going to keep the introduction pretty short here, and so I ask you that you please pray with me for guidance this morning. Lord, we thank you, God, for another wonderful morning that we get the opportunity to gather with the saints. Lord, we get to gather with one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, and I don't want us, Lord, to lose perspective of how wonderful that is. What a gift that is. And so, Lord, as we explore this topic, God, this morning, this, this topic of spiritual gifts and how, how you have given us various gifts, I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you guide us, Lord, that you put our preconceived notions, Lord, we, you put our, our egos and our pride behind, and just, Lord, help us bend the knee to your holy scriptures. And I pray that your spirit is our guide this morning. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, <clears throat> excuse me. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. And if you don't, that's okay. You can cheat. We got it up on the, on the screen. So here in this passage, Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth has really been just, just infiltrated by false teachers who have been leading this church astray in a variety of different ways. They've just been spreading false doctrine left and right. And it's been about a, a lot of different topics. And Paul seems to be concerned that these false teachers may have also been misinforming the Corinthians about the nature of spiritual gifts, because this is one of the things that Paul addresses. Now, before we read this passage, I want to make a distinction kind of clear in our minds, all right? There is a difference between natural talents and spiritual gifts. Sometimes we can kind of, kind of confuse the two, but there's a difference between natural talents and spiritual gifts. Let me give an example. There are unbelievers out in the world who are excellent public speakers, Right? They're, they're fantastic public speakers. They can command a room. They can, they can enthrall listeners. They can, they can make people extremely emotional, have emotional responses to what they are saying. They have a natural talent with that. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that even unbelievers, uh, the, even their natural talent of, uh, for speaking or whatever else is a result of God's common grace. But this is not what Scripture is speaking of when it speaks of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts do not necessarily mean talents, natural talents. And so for the definition for a spiritual gift, let's take a look at verses 4 through 7. It says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are, a or there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so that's, that, that's our definition, right? A spiritual gift is just that. It's a, it's a gifting. It's an equipping for service. And it's, a, it's an ability to perform various activities that is given to the members of the church by the Holy Spirit, and it is fueled by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul calls these giftings in, in verse 7 actually manifestations of the Spirit, the Spirit manifests Himself by giving these gifts to various people in the church. Now, I want you to notice something about this passage. Spiritual gifts, these, these supernatural endowments of the Holy Spirit, are not relegated to only a certain class of Christian. They're not relegated to a certain class of Christian. Gifts are not only given to the leaders or the elders or, or the deacons, but these spiritual gifts, or the, the Spirit rather, gives these gifts by His grace freely to every single believer. Every single believer. 
Now, if you jump down real quick to verse 29, you'll see that not every believer is given every single one of these gifts. We don't, we don't just have this big list of gifts, and as soon as you become a Christian, you get all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's not what Paul says. But every believer has, at the very least, one spiritual gifts, gift. And for me, I think that's amazing. I think that's awesome. You, believer, whether you feel like you do or not, have been given a spiritual gift, maybe multiple spiritual gifts, by the Holy Spirit. You've got one. If you are a believer here in this room, you have some sort of gift that has been specially given to you by the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing. Now, a quick aside. There can certainly be overlap with natural talents. Spiritual gifts and natural talents, they they can have some overlap. Somebody who is naturally talented at teaching before they became a Christian may also be given the spiritual gifting in teaching when they become a Christian. So there, there can be overlap there. But at the same time, I do not want you to limit your thinking of the Holy Spirit's giftings to something that you just feel like you may have a natural talent for. Because... I believe there are many times that the Lord gifts us in areas in which we feel the weakest. And I believe this was the case for Paul, right? The Apostle Paul. He was obviously spiritually gifted at speaking and at teaching and at preaching, right? that's, That's obvious. But how does he describe himself? Right, yeah. 1 Corinthians 2, he says he didn't come to Corinth speaking eloquently. And so from from the world's perspective, Paul would not be considered a naturally talented speaker. From the world's perspective. But that is the beauty of spiritual gifts in the Lord who gives them to us. Often in spiritual giftings, the truth of 2 Corinthians 12.10 is displayed. That in our weakness, the strength of the Lord empowering us is on display. So I think we spend too much time trying to find out how we are talented and kind of confuse those things with with spiritual giftings. And if we we don't feel like we have any any talents, you know, then we feel like we don't have any spiritual giftings. And that's just not the case. Personally, I believe when you begin to serve, even in ways that you feel uncomfortable in, you will actually find that the Lord has gifted you to perform the task at hand. And so I think it's, it's hard to learn your spiritual gifting without first stepping out faithfully in service, whether that be evangelism or kids' ministry or leading a Bible study, welcoming people into your home, being hospitable or evangelizing and so on. Without first making those faithful steps, it can be hard to find out where God actually has gifted you. Now when it comes to these spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives to all of the church, there is a certain nature to those gifts, other than spiritual, of course. But look again at verse 7 of our passage. Verse 7. It says, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. And what is the purpose of these manifestations of the Spirit? It is for the common good. It's for the common good. And so Paul is saying that the gifts we are given are to be others-oriented. They are to be others-oriented. We are given gifts to build up, to enrich, and to edify the body. And this is actually repeated by Paul in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, when he lists a variety of gifts given to the various people in the church, and he emphasizes that these gifts are given to the saints in, in order to equip them for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. And so spiritual gifts are not, are not given to you to kind of just hoard to yourself. Spiritual gifts aren't, aren't given to you to just edify yourself but to use in service to others in the body. That's that's the whole purpose of spiritual gifts. It's for others, not, not, not for you alone. And friends, each and every one of you has a gifting that God truly desires for you to use to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ, to minister to them, 
and to serve them. And friends, also, your gifting, whatever it may be, is indispensable to the church. It's indispensable to the church. Verses 12 through 15 here in 1 Corinthians 12, we're not going to read it, but verses 12 through 15 is really Paul's explanation of how every member of the church body is valuable and needed. As one theologian wisely pointed out, we must guard against this this self-deprecation that can often kind of come inside of us. And and it's it's the mentality that, that really says, I am no good, right? The church doesn't really need me. I've, I've got no giftings. I've got nothing to give. No one, no one needs me. That's a, that's a self-deprecating mentality that we're not called to have. The reality is, if you are in a church, and if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit for the sake of the church. Full stop. Full stop. But at the same time, That same theologian also said that we must also guard against self-exaltation. We must guard against the mentality that says, well, I've got, you know, I've got quite a few giftings, and so the church really needs me, right? This mentality says that that actually I'm great, and you're no good. I, I don't need you, right? But the truth of Scripture the truth that God, through His Word and through the, actually the very DNA of how He has built His church, reveals to us the truth that, that we actually need each other. We need each other. We desperately need each other. We need the giftings that God has given each one of us. And He, friends, has sovereignly brought us together in this body because we need each and every single one of our spiritual gifts. Paul then gives a list of uh, several spiritual gifts in verses 8 through 10. Gifts such as utterances of wisdom, of knowledge, of extra measures of faith, of healing, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Now this list is not exhaustive. This is not an exhaustive list. In fact, if you uh, kind of pull all together the list of spiritual gifts within the New Testament... Uh, you will see that uh, there's about four to six passages, and, and you'll get a list of around 22, kind of depending on how you count them, around 22 different giftings. But again, I do not believe that all of these gifts given in this, these lists in the New Testament are meant to be exhaustive. I don't think that there are just, just these 22 gifts, and then the Holy Spirit just kind of dispenses from those 22 gifts in the church. I don't think that's really what Paul... Uh, and the writers of the New Testament are trying to get at. I believe that these lists are meant to give us more of a general understanding of the gifts the Holy Spirit apportions to us rather than just being this exhaustive list. In Romans 12, 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and 1 Peter 4, 11 are those primary passages where you, were, where you will find these lists. If you need that, again, I forgot to make a slide for it, sorry. But if you, need, uh, if you need those lists afterwards, then come find me. But it's important that if you do read those, it's important to note that as you read through some of those passages, you will see some of these spiritual gifts kind of overlapping. And again, these are meant to just give you a general understanding of these gifts and not meant to be an airtight list. But as you read these lists on your own, you will also see giftings such as the gift of evangelism and hospitality and serving. Now, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that because you don't feel like you have the gift of evangelism, that therefore, you don't have to go out there and evangelize. Or if you feel like you don't have the gift of hospitality, you therefore don't have to be hospitable. You know, you've got the freedom to be a jerk. That's not the case. We are all called to go out and evangelize. We are all called to be hospitable. We are all called to serve, all of us. But what it does mean is that there will be some within the church who are especially gifted at those things. Right? There will be those who excel at evangelism. There will be those who excel at hospitality. There will be those who excel at service. But that does not negate the command of all within the church to do those things. 
as a bad example that I don't encourage you to use. It's like uh, if you don't feel especially gifted at being a parent, you know, can you just not be a parent? Of course not. That's ridiculous. That's not on the list, so that's why I'm saying don't you know, use that as an example. So, oh no. Don't write that one down. Chris, edit that. Thanks, man. All right, so now you may be thinking to yourself <clears throat> at this point, you know, all of this sounds great, right? This sounds wonderful. I want the Spirit to reveal my giftings to me. Or you might be thinking, you know, I want the Lord to grow me in the giftings that He's already revealed to me. I want to use them to, to serve the church. And so what, where exactly is the controversy here? Where, where's the big problem? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the controversy comes with four spiritual gifts in particular. And they are prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, and healing. These gifts are often called the charismatic gifts, but I don't actually like that term. And the reason I don't like that term is because the word charismatic simply means grace gifts. Grace gifts. And all of the gifts that are given out by the Holy Spirit are gifts that He's given to us by His grace. All gifts given by the Holy Spirit are grace gifts. So that's why I don't really like the term charismatic gifts. And so another term that I'm going to use that's often given to these gifts is kind of sign gifts. That's just another way to kind of categorize them off by themselves. Now the reason why these gifts fall into controversy within the church is really because of one passage in particular. And that is 1 Corinthians 3, or sorry, rather, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. I think we have that passage on the screen. And this passage says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, there are two ways in which this passage is interpreted within the church. I'm going to kind of throw out a couple big words to you, so, so just try to hang in there with me. But the first one is called the continuationist view. The continuationist view. And the second is called the cessationist view. Cessationist. Now, the cessationist, with the root being to cease, so you can kind of think of it that way, to cease, and then uh, continuationist, to continue. To cease and to continue. So the cessationist view interprets this passage by saying that those specific sign gifts, the gifts of prophecy and tongues and the interpretation of tongues along with it, and they, they kind of throw healing in there as well, have all ceased. They, they've ceased, especially to a certain degree. And they believe that, they believe they have ceased because their understanding of the coming of the perfect means the coming or the completion of the New Testament revelation. Right? That's, that's why they believe that. When the last word of the New Testament was completed, that was the coming of the perfect, and therefore all of these sign gifts are no longer needed because we have the entirety of Scripture available to us. So that's a, a wonderful thing. Now the continuationist, again, root being to continue, that view is, of course, pretty much the exact opposite. As the name uh, pretty much suggests, this view says that the sign gifts continue until today. The Holy Spirit is still giving them out as He sees fit to whomever He chooses, and they believe this because their understanding of verse 10 is that when Paul is speaking of the coming of the perfect, he's not speaking of the completion of the Scripture. He's not speaking of the completion of the Old Testament and the New Testament canon, but rather he is actually speaking to the second coming of Christ, the coming of the perfect. Now, before I tell you what my viewpoint is on this, I'm going to make you wait just a little bit longer. It's important to understand that there are brilliant, there are godly, wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ on both sides of this issue. And this issue in particular is probably one of, the, uh, one of those issues that I have personally probably wrestled with the most of, of any other topic within Scripture. I've gone back and forth more times than I can possibly count. And like I said, we have godly men on both sides and godly women on both sides who believe either one of these things. You know, there are people, theologians, who may disagree with me on this, with you on this, but they would eat our lunch when it comes to their biblical knowledge. 
who would put us to shame with their love of Christ and their dedication to serving Him. And so I do not want to want to see any of us within this church, within Redeemer, believing that our view on this is a litmus test for faith. Let that not be found here. Now, to lay my cards on the table, I've actually somewhat recently come to the conclusion, unless convinced by Scripture otherwise, that the Scripture teaches the continuation of the sign gifts. I'm actually going against my spiritual grandfather, uh, R.C. Sproul, here. And my reason for this is actually found in the following verses. 1 Corinthians, uh, following, little, sorry. And my reason for this is found in the following verses of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 12. But let me read verses 8 through 12 so we can kind of get the fullest context that we can get here. It says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall, fully, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known." So I believe that Paul is saying that all of these gifts that we experience now, including the sign gifts, are just meant to give us a taste of what is to come when Christ comes again. And so rather than the perfect, meaning the closing of Scripture, I believe within the, within the context of verses 11 through 12, Paul is actually speaking of the coming of Christ. Because a lot of this, a lot of this in verses 11 and 12 is, is really talking about our, our glorification. Right? Our, our final glorification, when, when everything, our bodies and our minds and our spirits will be completely glorified and everything will be revealed to us and we'll be able to see Christ face to face, that's the description that we get of the second coming of Christ. And so when Christ comes again, all of these gifts that have essentially been these kind of placeholder blessings until the true glory of Jesus returns will pass away because they will no longer be needed. They, they, they won't be needed. The church will no longer need to be built up and encouraged by these particular gifts, by one another, because the church will have finally reached full maturity when we see Jesus face to face. But until that day comes, I do believe the sign gifts will continue to be distributed by the Holy Spirit when and where He desires. And so that, that is my leanings on this issue. That is where I sit. And again, friends, there is room for graceful disagreement here. And I really stress that word, graceful. Graceful disagreement here, all right? <clears throat> now, my goal that I had for this sermon was to actually look at each one of these sign gifts and put them within their proper biblical context and Definitions, And the, the reason I wanted to do this is because I believe that they have been gravely, gravely misunderstood and even abused within many churches and in many denominations around the world and flat out ignored by others. But there are many churches and events in which you will see things such as, as healings or, or speaking in tongues or prophecy in ways that are absolutely foreign to what the Bible describes. There are an untold number of charlatans and false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, that have hurt and led astray many people because they have warped these gifts that the Holy Spirit gives into avenues for their own gain and to puff themselves up. <clears throat> but then there are others who are just simply misinformed, who, who sort of look at the surface level teachings of, of these sign gifts and they don't really dig into what these are supposed to look like when they're truly manifested for the common good. But the result can often be the same. An exercising of these gifts in a way which is foreign to the biblical definitions of them and the biblical functions of them. And so I'm going to be bold enough to say that when those things happen, it's not truly a manifestation of these spiritual gifts. Rather, it is either deception 
whether that deception be from a human being or, or more demonic origins. Now, there are certain experiences all around the world from a variety of different world religions like voodoo or witchcraft or, or even African tribal religions that actually look exactly like how some of these denominations and some of these churches claim to experience these so-called charismatic gifts. And so I believe that, that it can be deception. Or it can be emotionalism. Having a religious experience and kind of getting swept up in the emotion, not stopping to look at how Scripture defines some of these things that you experience in these, these high, emotion, high emotional settings. And so while I am a continuationist, and while I believe that it is good to actually seek these spiritual gifts, we are also called to test all things by the measure of, or not by the measure, of our emotional attachment to them, not by our experiences that we may or may not have had, because there are others who are not Christians who may have had very similar experiences, but we are to test all things by the Word of God. Yes. Right? Yes. And as 2 Thessalonians tells us, we are to hold on to only that which is good, only to that which is biblical. And so with all that being said, again, my plan this morning was to go through each one of these sign gifts and, and put them into their proper biblical place and to see what Scripture actually has to say about them. But we're only going to have, to, uh, we only have the time to really just dive into one of them, and we're going to have to save the others for a later sermon or most likely sermons. So I'm really fast when I go through these things. And so I actually want us to begin with prophecy, with prophecy. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5, and I believe it's up on the screen. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation or comfort. That's what consolation is. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak tongues, but even more, even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So put simply, Paul is saying to the church to pursue the gift of prophecy because it edifies and builds up the church. Now, this spiritual gift can make many believers very uncomfortable, and for very good reason. The question we must answer is, our continuation is saying that there are a bunch of Jeremiah's and Isaiah's walking around right now, speaking the very words of God, receiving new divine revelations that are on the same level of authority and infallibility as Scripture. And if so, why would we even need... Or, Rather, why, why would we even need prophecy if we have the Bible? Is that not enough? Does, does, does New Testament prophecy go, go against the sufficiency of Scripture? And so do you see how this can make some unbelievers uncomfortable? I hope you do, because that would be a problem. And I'm very sympathetic with this concern. But here's the thing. I do not believe that this is the type of prophecy that Paul is speaking of here. And I believe the problem is that we can sometimes have a narrow, narrower view of the term prophecy than what the Bible actually puts forward. We can kind of sometimes have this word, prophecy for instance, and have this very kind of small box that we put it into. Because we have this idea that this is what prophecy means. Every single time the Bible uses it, we stick it in that box. But I don't think that's what we should do. We should look at what Scripture says about these different words and how the Bible uses it. So I was really helped by theologians and Bible teachers, David Platt, D.A. Carson, John Bloom, and Sam Storms with, with this. But Scripture actually speaks to three different categories of prophecy. Three different categories of prophecy. First, you have false prophecy. That one's pretty easy to figure out. This comes from people who are spreading lies and false teachings and, and purporting to know these kind of these, these secret, hidden knowledge of some sort, and they say that they're getting all this information from God. 
So Deuteronomy 13, 18 and Jeremiah 23 are a couple of places that talk about such false prophets. But there is no true divine revelation in false prophecy at all. Just simply deception that either outright contradicts Scripture or heavily warps its meaning. Next, we have true prophecy. True prophecy, which is what we see in uh, the likes of the Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. Now, true prophecy is, the, is kind of the polar opposite of false prophecy in that it is direct revelation from God to the prophet. Most notably, this revelation is not just a, a feeling that these prophets get, uh, but rather it is direct speech from God to the prophet, which results in the infallible, inerrant words that we have in the Old Testament Scripture. All right? Now, the New Testament was put together just a, a little bit differently than the Old Testament. The New Testament contemporaries uh, for the prophets were the apostles, were the apostles, who when teaching the things that Jesus taught them, I believe were speaking and teaching with the same infallible speech as the Old Testament prophets when delivering messages from the Lord. And that's not just, just my thinking. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 2. Now, we also believe that the Holy Spirit moved in the Old Testament and the New Testament writers in a special way in which everything that they wrote was inspired and breathed out by God, yeah. right? That's 2 Timothy 3.16, right? It was, it's God-breathed, theonoustos, making what it says and teaches infallible and without error. And sadly, that's a doctrine that has a lot of controversy around it right now, which is crazy to me. And so for simplicity's sake, we can put kind of all of this within that same category. We can put, we can put the new, uh, new and Old Testament writings as, as infallible prophecy and the Old Testament prophets as, as infallible prophecy that resulted in Scripture and is authoritative to all. And so we have false prophecy, then we have true prophecy, which resulted in the Bible. And I do not believe what Paul is calling prophecy here in 1 Corinthians 14 actually fits into either one of these first two categories. I believe, borrowing the language from John Bloom, that the way Paul thought of prophecy in the New Testament church aligns more accurately with prophecy as Holy Spirit-prompted, subordinate revelation that readers would expect to be partially or fallibly spoken, and was therefore intended to be tested against and subject to the teaching of Scripture. Now, I know that was a long definition, all right? I see you're exhausted from that already. In other words, there, there isn't in other words here, I promise. This prophecy, this type of prophecy that Paul is speaking of, is simply saying, something that God, by His Spirit, brings spontaneously to our minds that is based on established revelation. Right. Let me say that one more time. This type of prophecy is simply saying something that God, by His Spirit, brings spontaneously to our minds that is based on established revelation. What I mean by that is that someone gifted with prophecy is not a new Paul, or a new Jeremiah walking around getting this direct revelation from God to give to the church that should be seen with the same type of authority and infallibility as Scripture, right? Because if that was the case, then everything that they said, you better be writing it down, because it's going to be in the next edition of the Bible. Rather, this is the Spirit speaking to us, prompting us to speak based on what is already in this book and is to be subjected to testing by this book. Now, there are several reasons why I believe that the New Testament prophecy belongs in this third category. We're not going to be able to go through all of them. But one that is most compelling to me, that, that again, John Bloom and D.A. Carson pointed out, uh, essentially lies in the command from Paul to the church in the very first verse of 1 Corinthians 14. You see here that he is commanding all of the church, all of the church, not just a select few, such as the elders, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but above all others, even tongues, earnestly desire prophecy. He is, he is commending that to all of the church, all of them. 
This is an unqualified command. And not only that, but he commands it without any sort of warning whatsoever to those who would be speaking uh, about speaking falsely, about speaking false prophecy. Now, contrast that, contrast that, I don't know the emphasis there, but contrast that with Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, which has major and dire warnings for those who would be false prophets. And so the lack of such warning here seems to suggest that a different type of prophecy is at play here in the New Testament church. One that would be presumed to be spirit-prompted, but would be fallibly communicated, not meant to be taken at the same level as Scripture. So also, kind of along those lines, in James 3.1, James warns those who would seek to be teachers that they would need to be careful because they would be under stricter judgment if they proved to be false teachers. Now, you would think if prophecy, or if the prophecy that Paul had in mind in the New Testament was the, was the same authoritative, infallible, scripture-level type prophecy, that James would have mentioned that here as well, as well. But he doesn't. He doesn't mention that here at all. In fact, there's really no warning to the church in regards to seeking the gift of prophecy in the New Testament at all. There's no warnings. The church is simply told to do it, told to pursue it. And I believe this is because it is simply a, a different category of prophecy altogether. However, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21, which I think we have that passage too, tells us, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise these prophecies. Do not despise prophecies as defined as, as we just went through. But test everything. Yeah. But test everything and hold fast to what is good. Yeah. We aren't to take a word from somebody, whether it be prophetic or not, at face value but rather it is to be judged by the greater revelation, by Scripture, and only if it is in accordance with what God has said, then we can hold on to what is good, right? Likewise, further down in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 29, Paul says that if there are prophets speaking, others in the church are to weigh what they say. They're to weigh what they say. They're not to sit in, in awe and write down every word and become a really creepy cult. That's, that's not what's going on. They are to weigh what they said. And weigh it against what? God's Word. Scripture. Scripture. Right. Their utterances are not to be taken as infallible and authoritative. Now, another reason I believe this type of prophecy is different than Old Testament type of prophecy is the way that Paul describes its role in the church. Paul emphasizes back in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, that one of the primary roles of New Testament prophecy is not to bring new revelation that brings with it new doctrinal teaching, like the Old Testament prophets or, or the apostles. Rather, what does he say? Its role is for building up. It's for encouragement. It's for consolation, for, for comfort of the church. That's its role. And to be completely honest with you, I believe when people experience this gift of the Holy Spirit, they don't even know they're doing it. That, that, that's my particular view on this. Because if you ever had an experience when you're speaking with someone and they pour out their heart to you, and out of seemingly nowhere, a passage comes to your mind and you're given words to say that you didn't even know were in you to say. Right? Have you ever had that experience? Or has someone maybe come to you and spoken biblical truth to you about something that they would have no idea that they, they would have known was going on in your life? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And have, you, have you ever been to a, a Sunday morning service yeah. that spoke... <laughs> that spoke... Uh, <laughs> All right, well, I'll move on. But have you ever been to a Sunday morning sermon that spoke so directly to you that you wonder how the pastor could have known that you were wrestling with a particular problem that was addressed in the sermon? Have you ever experienced that? I believe moments like that are the Spirit's manifestation of this gift. 
It is not some Old Testament prophetic God speaking audibly to you like Moses in the burning bush, but the Spirit miraculously prompting you to speak scriptural truth to those who are in the church. Right, that was the Holy Spirit. Right, right. Yeah, it brings to light, it brings to mind these things. I believe that this is most often how the, the Spirit manifests His gifts in His church, and it is to build up, it is to encourage, and it is to comfort one another, not to be this grand show. Now, what I just described is, is not the only way that Paul says the Spirit manifests this gift of prophecy here in 1 Corinthians 14. But before I tell you <clears throat> what the next part is, let me read this quick story to you from Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the last 300 years. Now, when I read this story, I do want you to keep in mind that Spurgeon was a cessationist. He claimed to be a cessationist. So just, just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. It says, he, Spurgeon, suddenly broke off from his sermon subject and pointing in a certain direction said, young man, those gloves you are wearing have not been paid for you or have been paid for. You have stolen them from your employer. Now, at the close of the service, a young man, looking very pale and greatly agitated, came to the room which was used as a vestry and begged for a private interview with Spurgeon. On being admitted, he placed a pair of gloves upon the table and tearfully said, It's the first time I have ever robbed my master, and I will never do it again. You won't expose me, sir, will you? It would kill my mother if she, had, if she heard that I'd become a thief. And it continues. Spurgeon reflected on this occasion and said, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at, pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking, and so striking has been my description that the person have gone away and said to their friend, come and see a man that told me all things that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul, or else he could not have described me so exactly. Now, now, Spurgeon would call these experiences that he had impressions of the Spirit, not prophecy. He, he saved that for infallible revelation. He didn't use that word. He would, he would describe it as impressions of the Spirit because he was a cessationist. However, these experiences of Spurgeon are pretty much exactly, exactly what Paul calls prophecy in verses 24 through 25. Verses 24 through 25 says, But if all prophecy in, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, doesn't this sound exactly like Spurgeon's experience? Doesn't that sound exactly like Spurgeon's experience? And so, the New Testament prophecy is used in this manner as well. The Holy Spirit prompting you to bring to light hidden sin so that the person that you are speaking to can come to repentance and faith and worship. Now, we must tread carefully here when it comes to prophecy. And remember that this can be abused or just simply misunderstood. Kayla and I one time went to a kind of an apologetics uh, evening back in West Tennessee, and this really well-meaning young man came up to Kayla and said, I something along the lines of, I feel like the Lord is, is leading me to, to, to say something to you, to speak to you. Do you have this and this and this going on in your life right now? And Kayla just looked at him and said, no, I don't actually, sorry. But he was really sweet and prayed with her anyway. And so friends, not every inclination that you have, not every gut feeling that you have is coming from the Holy Spirit, okay? You must be discerning, you must be prayerful, and willing to exercise, and really hear me here, willing to exercise self-control. And in regards to self-control, you are not to, to, to blurt out halfway through a church service something that you feel like the Lord is putting on your heart right then and there, right? God clearly says there is to be an order to these things. And self-control is to be exercised. That's one of the, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? Self-control. 
And we'll speak more on that in another sermon. Now, of course, there is much, much more that can be said about this subject. I had to leave many stones unturned. I think we're at hour two um, of this sermon already. Um, but I, I hope that, that this kind of gave us a, a primer to, to these spiritual gifts and a, and a primer especially to, uh, to the gift of prophecy. And so as I land this plane, I just want to reiterate a few points we walked through this morning. And uh, yes, I, I realize I used a plane reference. All right, so... Yeah, I'm going to wash my mouth out later. I don't like flying. All right. But there are brilliant, godly, spiritual, gifted, and mature believers in both of the cessationist and continuationist camps, right? We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and this is not a salvific issue. That's point number one. Point number two, Paul's thought of New Testament prophecy differs from Old Testament prophecy and New Testament apostolic teaching in that these Holy Spirit promptings, this New Testament uh, uh, prophecy, are not new revelations on the level of Scripture, but are promptings of the Holy Spirit to say things in accordance with biblical truth for uplifting, for encouragement and comfort of the church, or the conviction of sin and a testimony of God. It is not to be a replacement for or in addition to the all-sufficient word of God. All right? And then third, Paul tells us that above all spiritual gifts, we should earnestly desire this type of prophecy, above all gifts. We should want, whether you're in the cessationist view or the, or the, uh, or the continuationist view, we should want the Spirit to, to so move in us that the words we speak are, are saturated with the Bible. We should, we should pray for our mouths to just really just, just spill out Scripture, right? And we should desire to, to prophetically, in the New Testament sense, speak encouragement and comfort to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can lift them up and point them to their Savior, right? We should desire to be given the ability to call out hidden sin in unbelievers so that they can see the power of God displayed and come to repentance and faith. And so whether you are a cessationist or a continuationist, I believe surely somewhere in that we can find some common ground. All right, please play with me. God, I thank you that even though this can be a, a hot topic in so many different churches, in so many different areas, Lord, that we can... Lord, that we can, we can approach this subject with, with, with humor, Lord, with uh, uh, God, just with unity and love for one another. And I pray that you continue that even after this, this sermon is finished. Uh, Lord, I pray, God, that you spoke to people's hearts this morning. Uh, Lord, that you gave us a longing for you, a longing for the gifts that you give us. Lord, but above all else, God, give us a longing, God, for your son. Lord, to be conformed more into his image. God, for the words that we say be like the words of your Son. Words that, Lord, that, that build up. God, Lord, uh, words that, that bring comfort. And Lord, ultimately, words that bring salvation because we're speaking the gospel to one another. We're speaking the gospel to the world around us. So God, we love you. God, and I thank you again for this morning. I pray this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.